1: Today's episode is a very special episode. We're going to focus on the topic of uh, citizenship, in particular naturalized citizenship, how uh, individuals, like many of our relatives, uh, become citizens of the United States uh, when moving to the United States. And uh, we have with us, uh, also making this an incredibly special episode, a uh, close friend and colleague and fellow scholar, uh, Miha Vindis. Uh, Welcome, Miha. Thank you. Mia has uh, just become a citizen of the United States. In fact, on Friday of last week, uh, I attended his citizenship ceremony here in Austin, and it was one of the most moving things I have done in a long time. Uh, Mia is a man of many, many talents. Uh, Among other things, he's a professor here at the University of Texas at Austin, teaching in a number of different programs uh, at the business school, at the LBJ school, and elsewhere. Uh, He's a consultant who works to help organizations with strategic planning. Uh, We're hoping he'll soon be doing that in Washington uh, (laughs) somewhere. And he serves on the board of Habitat Humanity in Texas. Uh, Miha has worked and lived in multiple countries. Uh, In particular, he worked for Shell Oil in the Netherlands. He's lived in Thailand and Germany and Poland. And his Ph.D., uh, is from the LBJ School uh, here in uh, Austin. Uh, we're so lucky to have Miha here, and we're so fortunate to have him now as a citizen, a voting citizen of the United States. Uh, before we turn to our discussion with Miha, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary's poem that will set our scene. What is the title of your poem, Zachary?
2: America in the Face. Uh, let's hear it. I have seen America in the Faces at the Courthouse, new Americans in America ready to make a new America. The world has always caught us watching this nation like it is our child, finding infinite embraces in the legal esoterica. The world has always caught us watching America like it is our child, how it is to each of us inseparable with deep feeling, impossible to view from above. I have seen America in the faces at the courthouse, watching their papers finally filed, indebted to imperfect ideals and an obligation of new explanations of American love. I have seen America on the faces at the courthouse, joy unbridled, the Impressionist paintings of flags hanging in the rain. The world has always caught us watching America like it is our child, nature for naturalized to love all of this through weakness and pain. The world has always caught us watching America like it is our child, and there are no more truthful lines than the rough poetry of airport welcome signs, no greater dedication than the courthouse monuments to the conscience of our nation, freedom's dominance." I have seen America in the faces at the courthouse, and we can only hope that we all might be saved in its memory by the remnant gestures of generosity sent across the ruins of endless wars for the faces that will pass through the courthouse doors here in 50 years hence.
1: Hmm. I love the imagery. Uh, What is your poem about, Zachary?
2: My poem is really about uh, not only how meaningful and how powerful the process of citizenship and American citizenship is for those who become American citizens, but also how important citizenship and the immigration and Americanization of so many people around the world has been so vital to our nation and will continue to define us.
1: That's right, it's made our country. It's, it's how most of our families uh, came here, right?
2: Yeah. It's
1: extraordinary. Uh, Miha, w- w- why did you decide to become an American citizen? <laughs>
0: I think that for any big decision in life, there's usually two sides to it. To it, on the one hand, there's the you know the, the part that's driven by your heart, and then there's the part that's driven by your brain. Yes. Yes. Um, and so, let me backtrack here Please. a little bit. So, um, when I was nine years old, moved to Thailand. Um, and uh, grew up there. So from the age of 9 till 18, I lived in Thailand. And there I was exposed to a very multicultural society, certainly less homogeneous than, say, Slovenia or Yugoslavia mm-hmm. was at the time. Uh, that's also where I went to an international high school. It was basically a followed an American model of high school. So we had uh, grades 1 through 12. Uh, most of the students there were from the U.S., uh, expats, families, etc., so I got a little bit of flavor of the United States through that. And, of course, you know, I was, I was 9, 10 years old when I first moved there. So, of course, you know, I was watching G.I. Joe and Transformers. <laughs> and, and I, I, Fine literature. And uh, I'm not a psychologist, but I imagine that that had some kind of influence. Sure. But for me, it was more, you know, it, it was this, this, seeing this multicultural society and, and seeing that the world is a lot bigger than where I came yes. from. Right. Slovenia yes. is a very small country, less than 2 million people. So, for me, it was kind of eye-opening. And part of that, you know, I met a lot of Americans there, and I started learning more about American values and the ideals that the country would represent, uh, represented for at least those people who were there. Um, And I became... I would say I numbered in a way. I wanted to mm-hmm. learn more. I became curious, um, not in an intellectual sense, more in a kind of a personal sense. Sure. Um, a lot of my good friends were from the U.S., and so I started, you know, building these bonds, and I started appreciating what the country represented at a very young age. Um, but it goes even further, even earlier than that for me, at least. So um, my parents, right, grew up. In, in the fifth, they were born in the fifties, and so they grew up right after the the end of the Second World War, sure. at the height of the Cold War. Sure. In 1949, uh, Tito broke with Stalin, and that allowed him to accept the Marshall Plan.
1: Right. This is Joseph Broz Tito, the as uh, communist leader of Yugoslavia. Exactly,
0: communist leader of Yugoslavia. Uh, he, I mean, he was basically the person who held the republics together. Yes. And uh, in 1951 or 52, I believe, uh, he opted into the Marshall Plan mm-hmm. and suddenly there were food deliveries made to Yugoslavia. My parents' families were recipients of this. You wow. Know? I my, just the other day my mom was telling me, you know, how they got, you know, it was like flour, sugar, uh, condensed milk, things that you couldn't get right. in post-war Europe. But things that are we know are important, of right? Course. For children growing up, so they're healthy, you know, grow up and be healthy adults. And so I, you know, looking back, I think there already were things that the United States was doing that was helping, me, even before I was born, sure. at least my family. Sure. Now, uh, I, I know that the Marshall Plan wasn't purely an altruistic exercise. Obviously, you have to look at it in the context of the Cold War. But nevertheless, for my family, it was a personal thing. Of course, right? Of course. And so again, you know, you feel, you know, you do feel like, hey, there, there's something that that we do owe to the United States. Um, at least I felt that way. I think, mm-hmm. you know, this is a country that, for whatever reason ended up helping my family this was before i was born of course um and then as i got older you know i became to appreciate more and more what the united states represented i learned that you know coming from again from a very multicultural setting in thailand moving back to europe to go to to go to undergrad i went to an american university university of maryland university college campus in germany near schwäbisch gmund um and again there were over 30 the nationalities are presented once again. Like it seemed like everything was moving me closer to the United States, uh-huh. you know, to America uh-huh. in that sense. Um, so from that sense, I always felt someone enamored by the values, at least the ideals that the country represents. Once I moved to the U.S., right, there's also this more of an intellectual piece of it, right. So I moved to the U.S. in 2009, and the plan was to go to grad school, get a master's degree, go back to Europe, mm-hmm. and potentially go work. But well, sure. for Shell, right? sure. the door was open to go back. You
1: already had a great job there.
0: Exactly. And I, I, I was considering going back, continuing that career. I, sure. I worked with some really great people. It was an exciting, sure. uh, you know, had an exciting job. And uh, But then, of course, you know, you make plans, but then life happens. Of course. <laughs> and so in the process, you know, I obviously met my wife at the time. Uh, I obviously stayed for the PhD program, like you mentioned. Uh, I bought a house, started two companies, and decided that this is where I'm going to settle down. Wow. I firmly believe that for a representative democracy to work, that people who reside in those countries that are that democracy should do everything in their power to civically participate. Yes. Um, for me, of course, I knew that just being a permanent resident, that there was limitations to what I could do. For certain, I, I couldn't vote and I think voting is perhaps the, the kind of main way of expressing our civic participation sure. in, in, in many Western democracies. And I really wanted that. And I thought, if I'm if I'm going to live in a country, I want to be able to participate. I don't want to be just an observer of the social right. contract. Right. I want to be part of it. Right. And so I think all those things combined, you know, made me think, you know, I really want to pursue this path. And so we started with first the uh, process for the green card or permanent residence. Uh, after three years, I was eligible to apply for citizenship. Yeah, and then, like I said, the process finally concluded uh, on Friday after five years. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing.
1: Almost to the day of the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Almost, yeah. <laughs> Almost to the day. Almost to the day. So, so Miha, what, what is the process like? You talked to us about your, your life choice process, but most Americans, especially those who, like uh, Zachary and myself, who were born into citizenship, we often take it for granted, first of all. But secondly, uh, we
0: don't know what the process is of
1: becoming a citizen. So how does it work?
0: Sure. So the path is very different depending on who you are and what kind of path you pursue. So the uh, you know you can get a, a permanent residence first through marriage, and then through that you can apply for citizenship through extraordinary skill, I believe it's called. So athletes, professors, and so forth. Uh, of course, you can go through the asylum route, which I think is probably the most difficult or getting more difficult today. Um, so I went through a spousal route. My, my spouse is a US citizen, and that's how I first got the, the green card. And there's two parts of the process here. First is the permanent citizenship, a permanent residence, sorry, part where you're getting your, your so-called green card. And it's called the green card because the card is physically green or, or used to be. Um, and so that process was a lot more about the spouse and the relationship with the spouse and so the, proving that you're actually
1: married proving, and things of like that and, so.
0: and here's the interesting thing i learned in the process right uh you know it's not it's not so much letters from people that, uh, that that testify hey these two people are in a real relationship it's not photos from your travels no the main way that you prove that you are in a real relationship is through finances it's all about the money Sounds very American. Yeah, it is. And that was fascinating, right? It was proving that, you know, you had joint bank accounts, uh, credit cards, uh, joint mortgages, right? Those are the things that are used to demonstrate that it's a real marriage. And that's fascinating. I think it tells you a lot about at least the people who were crafting the policies, right, right, that this is the process that we have. It's not about love. It's about money. No, it's about money. (laughs) Uh, It was fascinating. So that was the first part of it. Uh, The second part, the the actual citizenship part... um, no longer is no longer that connected to your spouse. I mean, you still have to prove that you're married because of the path I was on. Right. But at that point it's more about the person and that is just a sheer amount of background checks. So before I even got to the naturalization piece, so for the permanent residence, the green card, I had my biometrics, so uh, fingerprints and eye scanned uh, four or five times at oh least. My gosh. Oh uh, my gosh! Background checks, were extremely, extremely extensive. This process is very difficult, very time consuming. Mm-hmm. And to anyone who's listening to the podcast who's interested in going through this process, get a lawyer. Mm-hmm. If you have the resources to use a lawyer, get a lawyer. That that saved us a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of hassle. Sure. Um, and there, the process is more about, are you really uh, the kind of person that, that we want to allow to- to?
1: And what know. kind of person do we want to allow to be a citizen? And
0: and, and here's the interesting part. So I, I brought with me here, this is, a you pr- fill out form N-400. I don't know, these forms have these numbers, right? And so a form N-400, you know, you fill out some basic information. You have to do a background check and all this. But here are some interesting questions. And I think the application itself, this N-400, is an interesting historical document sure. on its own. Sure. right. These documents aren't updated often. right? So you have the usual questions, you know, uh, uh, things like have you committed a crime, etc. But then there's a question, have you ever been a member of or associated with the Communist Party? Oh, my gosh. Now, I can see how in the Cold War this was right. relevant. Perhaps this is even a relic of McCarthyism. Right. But today, I mean, you know, there is a Communist Party of America, right? I right. presume it. I, I'm assuming people can believe that if they choose to. but here's, I don't think
1: it threatens the republic. No,
0: I don't think so. But here's the one that really caught me off guard. And we had a lot of good discussions with, with friends about this one. So one question says, between March 23rd, 1933 and May 8th, 1945, did you work for or associate in any way, either directly or indirectly with the Nazi government of Germany, uh, uh, any government occupied by Germany, and then here's the last piece, any German Nazi or SS military unit, paramilitary unit, self-defense unit, vigilante unit, citizen unit, uh, etc., that worked at a concentration camp, extermination camp, prisoner of war camp, prison, labor camp, or transit camp. Wow. I can see why this question is, sure. is in this process, but it also tells you about how dated this is. I I'm, who Who is still alive from that time? Who right. Be? So, this was next year will be the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. So, you know, if we assume that somebody was 20 years old when they were, you know, in a role like this, they'd be in their 90s. Yeah. So... How long before we, for example, update this to be more relevant to today, right? Right. Are we going to wait until it's 100 years after the war? Yeah. So to me, it was just fascinating going through this process and seeing what the concerns are, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Once you're done with this application and once it's approved, you have your interview. And the interview is the kind of the big thing that, you know, you see it in a lot of movies, particularly romantic comedies, you know, (laughs) people going and Sure. um, And for me, the process was very straightforward. But again, it's going to be very different for different people. So for me, you know, you go in, there's two parts to the test. There's the uh, citizen, the the civics test, which is basically history, policy, et cetera. But that's interesting too, because many American citizens
1: couldn't pass that. test. I don't think so.
0: There's a hundred questions. You have to answer six, right? You get 10. So once you enter the sixth one correctly, they stop asking you questions. Wait,
1: they give you 100 questions, you only need to get six, right? Yeah. Or, and they, give you, or they give you 10 of them? They
0: give you 10. So they randomly select 10 From questions. the 100. Yeah, so from there are 100, the 100 they exactly.
1: can choose from. So you can actually, this is not hard to prepare for. You just prepare for all 100 questions.
0: Yes, it, it's really not hard. Second, give us an
1: example of one of the questions.
0: Sure. Then. So uh, what is the ocean off the eastern coast of the United States? Right. Who did the United States fight in the Second World War? Okay, so these are pretty basic. How many senators are there? Who is the current president? Who was the first president? Um, the, the questions are very straightforward. I actually asked the the officer after my interview, like, what? where do people stumble? And she said, you know, it's either the dates questions or it'll be the numbers questions. So, for example, people will say, you know, question is, how many senators are there? And somebody might just say 50, right. because there's 50 states, right. but there's 100. And so... The other piece that and the officer mentioned was, that, you know, people are very stressed. Like you're going into this. This is a – you don't get a redo, right? If you get it wrong, you you often have to restart the process. Oh, now, there, are, there are ways that people can redo the interview. There, there are all kinds of guidelines, and I'm not familiar with that. But for many people, if you fail that, you restart. And I don't know what happens if you restart, whether there's a red flag in right, your file. Right. So people are pretty stressed out. And plus, this is a really big deal right yeah, of course, you're, you're of not course, you know you're course. not interviewed this isn't just like a job interview this is something that will impact the rest of your life um and so the second piece then is the english language test which is which is somewhat absurd so you you get a uh, uh, three tries to read a question correctly and then answer it but they tell you the answer so mine was you get a little this is all electronic today, by the way, no paper. It was a little tablet in front of me. Question pops up and uh, the officer said, can you please read the question? And the question was, which is the most populous state in the union? And then she said, now write down, California is the most populous state in the university, in, in the union. And, and that was it, right? The whole interview, though, the small talk, the chit-chat really is part of the assessment to make sure you speak English. Um, and who interviews you? You're interviewed by an immigration officer, um, and they are folks with, with different kinds of backgrounds. Uh, they are all professional bureaucrats, people who worked uh, in immigration. So the officer I talked to actually told me that she was new to this interviewing job. She had worked on the on the I believe on the research behind, you know, when they do background checks sure, on people sure. and all that. So she did that for a number of years, and then she moved to an interview role. I think she said this was she was relatively new to it. We actually ended up talking about the LBJ School on UT. Because we do, you know, the LBJ school hosts uh, some of the large uh, naturalization ceremonies. And she had been there twice and helped organize them in her her previous role. And so we ended up talking about UT and and barbecue in Austin. My interview was 17 minutes long. Uh, I waited for about an hour, but the interview was 17 minutes. That's because I think for me, the case was was fairly straightforward, right? Highly educated. Uh, There was no question about my financial uh, situation. Uh, I have a spouse, uh, you know, Everything, right, all, all the right. ducks lined up. Right. Things were easy. But when we were sitting, and my wife was there with me, when we were sitting and waiting in, in, the, in, the, in the waiting room, the hall, there's like a big hall, maybe 60, 70 people waiting, and you're watching people go in and out. Yes. And you see some people come out, and they got big smiles on their face, and you know things went well. But once in a while, you have, you know, somebody walk through the door, and, and you can see they're on the verge of breaking oh. down. Um, that... Made the process real for me, and that made me realize that you know we often talk about immigration in this country. We talk about policies, politics, ideology. We talk about all kinds of things. It's easy to forget that there are real people who are going through this process. Yes, um, and I I can't judge whether you know some of those folks had their their naturalization process denied for right or wrong reasons. I I can't comment on that. What I can say is, though, that you could see on their face that th- this was a life-shattering, you know, event. Of course, um, of course. And that really brought it home. Well, and I mean. for
1: many of them, uh, this is not just a dream. This this is a source of salvation, right?
0: Yes. might be a question of survival,
1: absolutely. Um, what did you learn about your, yourself in the process? I mean, I know, Miha, you're obviously an incredibly thoughtful, cerebral, learned person uh, and and you've cared about democracy as a scholar and as a citizen for a long time, but I imagine the process also changed the way you thought about democracy.
0: Yeah. I, I, learned, I learned something really interesting about myself, so I'm glad you asked this question. Uh, when we go through this process, we think about citizenship, right? This is naturalization. We're talking about getting a passport, and we think about citizenship. But there's another element to this, and that is the question of allegiance. Yes. Now, for most people, right, you, you're born you're in a national or a, or a citizen of a particular country. It, it, you almost, it's almost assumed that your allegiance is therefore automatically attached to that citizenship, right. and that's where it lies. Right. Um, I think I learned from that, for me, this, this story was much more complicated. Because if someone had asked me four or five years ago, Miha, where do your allegiance lie? I'm not sure how I would answer. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm not sure if I would have an answer. You know, I was born a citizen of Yugoslavia. When I lived in Thailand, you know, in 91, Slovenia became independent. So that was the first time in my life that I switched citizenship. Hmm. Uh, It wasn't my choice. I I couldn't do anything about it. It it just happened, right? And so suddenly, you know, I had to go from thinking of myself as Yugoslavian to a Slovenian, Right. right? And then Slovenia joined the EU. And suddenly become EU citizens. I know it's not quite the same thing. You, you retain sovereignty when you're part of the European Union. Um, but, but still, it, it's different. It's different. And again, the citizenship might not have been an issue. But for me, it was, not again, a question of allegiance, right? And I think one reason why I never truly felt at home when I lived in Poland or the Netherlands – they were all wonderful countries, don't get me wrong um, – was that I never felt – like, you know, I never felt that um, – it was more than just a residence. It was right. more than just the kind of citizen component. There was something missing. I don't know yet whether it's the allegiance part that was missing, and that's something I still need to kind of figure right, out.
1: Right, right, right.
0: But it made me really realize that, you know, for me, the question of allegiance was was really kind of a nebulous topic because I, I didn't know where to put it. Of course. I didn't know whether it lay with Slovenia, with the European Union. And I was one of those people who, you know, when uh, when we got their European passports, I started identifying myself as a European first and Slovenian second. So, you know, those, those uh, bureaucrats, you know, in, in, in the European Union that wanted to develop the United States of Europe. I was like their poster child. You were indeed. You <laughs> I were was their indeed. poster child. But I don't think my allegiance lay there. I, Interesting. I still don't know. And so during the ceremony, one of the things you do is you not only do you pledge allegiance to the United States, um, and that felt on, on a on – it's hard to describe, but I think on an emotional, intellectual level, it felt – great to finally be doing that in a way Mm -hmm. but then you're also asked to rescind your allegiance at the same time to any other uh state uh actor government organization etc and so you know you say those words but my, my thought was but but I, I, I'm not entirely sure I really placed my allegiance anywhere. Right. And that's a strange position to be in. So this is the, you know, this is the, the at least the second time that I've officially changed citizenship. Uh, if you count the EU, be three times. But it's the first time that I've actually pledged an allegiance right. to something. So right.
1: beyond that, the citizenship right. step, step. But there's no reason, me, how you can't have allegiance to multiple entities. Now there might be legal limitations in the way this is talked Absolutely. about. But in, but in in daily practice. Uh, We all have allegiance to multiple sports teams, to multiple family elements, right? Why can't you have allegiance to the United States as a good Democrat and allegiance to Slovenia as a good Slovenian
0: Democrat, right? And I think think you're right. I think that there is no reason that that you can't have both. For me, what I learned about myself was that I, I didn't really yeah I, I i'm I'm still not sure exactly where my allegiance lay before this process right and that's really interesting because as somebody said i'm someone who's very introspective for sure. me not to know that it bothers me a little No, bit. that's true that's <laughs> and true. And so now I want to backtrack and figure out why why did this happen you know is it because I grew up in you know lived in so many different countries sure. they traveled so much, my citizenship changed so much i I don't know what it is right uh, but it's certainly something very interesting and i I don't think that um I don't think I would have learned something else about myself had I not gone through this process. Yeah. Wow, that's very powerful, Zachary. You had a question?
2: Yeah. How do you think this process w- would have been different if if you looked differently or or if you were from a different socioeconomic status?
0: I think it would have been harder. I think the process would have taken a lot longer. So I and again I, I can't I don't I don't have the data to bag any of this up. This is my opinion. I did, however, talk to a number of people who were going through the process at the same time, both in person and, you know, followed some blogs and forums online. So I, I was discussing it with people because I wanted to know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And as I was doing this, I learned there's a whole community of people out there supporting each other going through the process. And it seemed to me that the people who were from, you know, from parts of the world that that for whatever reason we are somewhat suspicious of, whether rightfully or wrongfully, um, they have a much higher hurdle to jump over, right? So if somebody comes from Iran, for example, they have a lot more, they have a lot more things they have to prove, right, that their that their allegedly are with the United States mm-hmm. simply because of the perceptions we have. Uh, that may not be right, but I think that that's how it is. I've also heard stories of people who had put in the application and they're waiting for a reply and it's been years and they're still waiting to hear back. Wow. so they haven't been denied uh, you know a, a residence or, or a citizenship whatever they're waiting for they haven't even heard back because backlogs are, are are so large right and these are people who primarily are applying for example through family right so right. if my parents right. wanted to immigrate it would take a very very long time so i i think yes the, the the process probably is different and i this little short story here when i went in for the uh permanent residence interview and so I, you have to go in with your spouse because i was applying through with my wife Right, right. well and i thought you just bring
1: your check your checkbook, your checkbook and show them. Yeah, should, yeah.
0: <laughs> here's our checkbook right so uh and what was fascinating when you came in everyone assumed that my wife was the one there applying right. for city right. for, for residence not me right right well That's,
1: because she looks mexican she's a mexican exactly. origin right
0: and that was the assumption and and when we walked out of that the interview we, we were like wow this is this is really interesting but Maybe not surprising.
1: Right. Right. It was very powerful at your uh, citizenship ceremony, the, the number of uh, new Mexican citizens and how was, yeah. how proud they were. Um, Mija, for, for a, a vibrant democracy like the United States, um, do you think there are things we should be doing to uh, facilitate naturalized citizenship? It strikes me that even though there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment we're hearing in our society now, The one thing that has always been true about the United States is that we have been a society of immigrants, some voluntary, some non-voluntary, and that immigration has consistently been the source of innovation, growth, and creativity. So what are your thoughts about thinking about naturalized citizenship and the future of the United States?
0: I think that, I think at the end of the day, I know this has been said before, we are a nation of immigrants. There are very few people who can truly claim that their roots are on the North American continent. Right, right. Um, but this country was was founded by people. I mean, it was imagined, right, and then created and sustained by immigrants, right? Many of the founding fathers were, were, were first generation. They sure. were people who had emigrated to the United States. Um, I, you know, and even today, even if you look at American society, there are so many people who are still proud of where their roots are from. Of course. I can't tell you how many people, when they found out that I was not from the U.S., and I think my accent still gives it away, <laughs> um, you know, would say, oh, you know, well, I'm Irish-American yeah. or I'm Chinese-American yeah. or I'm Scottish-American. Adding that before American tells you that people still really care about where their roots come from. Of course, from. yes. Now, some of us, you know, our roots may not be, you know, may not be as deep here because mm-hmm. we're... we we've you know, arrived more recently, um, but this—I I really don't think we're that different on on, on that level. Sometimes I think it's the—it's some politicians, and it's certainly some of the you know 24-hour cable news networks right. will have us believe that you know it's always this us and them, but that's not quite true. Um, and I, I have a quote here. I really like this. This is from from George Washington, and this was his fair. Uh, this wasn't the farewell address. This was. Um, I'm not sure where this quote is from. Maybe you can tell me. But the quote is this. He says, uh, the, bosom, the bosom of America is open to receive not only the opulent and respected stranger, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions whom we shall welcome to a participation of all our rights and privileges.
1: I believe that's his letter to the Jews of Newport, Rhode Island. I think Island. you're
0: right. Oh my gosh, I think you're right. <laughs> Great, it's a very famous it. letter. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Written in his own hand. It is. The whole letter is fantastic. So this idea that we're accepting of immigrants, this isn't new. This isn't something that started, you know, in the, no. in the 60s or, or 70s. This isn't a, a liberal idea. This is an idea that is, I think a basis of what this The founding this. idea. Exactly. And this was later reiterated, right? You know, John F. Kennedy, and you know, I'm a big fan. Uh, you know, I knew that, uh, you were going to quote John you know, I F. Kennedy. Have to, I have to once. He said, our attitude towards immigration reflects our faith in the American ideal. We have always believed it possible for men and women who start at the bottom to raise as far as the talent and energy allow." Neither race nor place of birth should affect their chances, that's right? Good, yeah. And so to me, that that encapsulates, I think, what this country is all about. Um, and we can continue to discussing uh, uh, politics and policy, and we should. We should have a lively debate. We should have people on different spectrums of this debate. I think that's what makes this country great. I would just encourage everyone to remember that at the end of the day, all of us are here because we uh, love the concepts of you know liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. For those of us who went through the process very recently, this is maybe a bit fresher in our minds yes. because for many people, these were the motivations for pursuing citizenship. Um, and I think the the ability to civically participate in a meaningful way, particularly through voting, is, is incredibly powerful. Um, I think it's not just a right. I think it's also an obligation. Yes. And I hope that many of our fellow Americans will continue voting and those who haven't, that they'll begin voting.
1: That's, that's beautiful, Miha, and so, so strongly stated. Um, we always like to close on a very positive note on using uh, this historical perspective that you've shared with us so well in a personal and scholarly way. Uh, we like to use that to sort of think about positive ways of going forward. What are the things that young people in particular who are listening now and others uh, can do to help encourage uh, naturalized citizens like yourself to welcome naturalized citizens to continue this process, despite all of this negative rhetoric that
0: we hear. Negative rhetoric that's not new to our time either, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Um, so I, I would encourage young people to two things. One is continue participating civically. Um it's very inspiring to have role models. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and, and this is certainly true, and this isn't just true for me and a lot of other folks I've talked to, love the fact that in this country, you have organizations that encourage young people to vote. Yes. Here, University of Texas, we have a number that do that. Yes. Um, in fact, a, a wonderful young lady who runs one of the organizations was in, in one of my classes in the leadership program, and I've asked her to, to register me to vote. It's fantastic. Uh, I think that and that's really inspiring to see young people yes. involved. So I would encourage young people to continue being as involved as you can—not just in voting, in all manner of civic uh, of civics. You know, participating in debates, uh, participating in town halls, canvassing, whatever it is, in whatever way you can get involved. Demonstrate, right, that despite the rhetoric that we hear, that this is not the future of the country. I think if you can demonstrate that, it'll make a lot more people feel. More welcome, more welcome, and I think more positive and thinking yes. that, you know, I'm joining yes. this society. And you know what? Despite all the issues that we have, the next generation is taking this right. seriously and they are taking the lead. Right. The other thing I would say is there are organizations out there that help uh, people who are going through the immigration process. Now, I was lucky that I had the resources to get a lawyer and, and to help with the process. There are organizations that, that help people who don't have, you know, the kind of resources that I was blessed with and help them move through the process. So look at those organizations, perhaps there's some you can volunteer with or support, but having that support as you're going through the process is absolutely critical. Right. Because nothing is worth, you know, than getting to the interview and realizing that some letter is off and then having to restart part of the process. It's
1: such a powerful point. You know, it, it seems to me one of the great things that's happened in the last few years is that people have stood up and gone out to airports and elsewhere to help defend yes. people who are being mistreated by some of our short-term policies. And we can all be part of that story. And in fact, that's an old part of our history. Uh, immigrant and ethnic support networks, settlement houses, organizations Absolutely. that provide the kind of legal advice, provide medical Medical advice, uh, provide language instruction. Yes. <laughs> there are all kinds of ways in which we can help people who are coming to our democracy and want to contribute to become uh, members of our democracy. Yep. That's really agree. wonderful, really wonderful. Zachary, what do you think? Is this is this a mission that young people like you can get behind?
2: Yes, I, I think the um, the the whole issue of immigration is something that young people care deeply about, and I think there's so much power in, in humanizing this process. And the people uh, who 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 are these immigrants, because uh, they remind us so much of ourselves
1: they do, they do. Uh, Miha, I have a last question for sure. you then before we close, just building on zachary's uh, Zachary's point. Um, do you Do you think that your American citizenship now will will change uh, the way you vote?
0: No. I don't think so. <laughs> that's a good. Uh, it's a good question, but no, I don't think so. I think that I, by the time you know, I'm forty-one years old. I yes. think by the time you you get to your probably your late thirties, you're you're pretty much yeah. fixed in how you think. Um, so that's pretty much set. Um, at least in terms of how I'm going to vote. Um, I do hope, though, that I will vote in every single election yes. that I can Yes. Uh, because, I, I, again, like I said, I think that for a representative democracy to work, we have to participate – Otherwise, the question is, who are our politicians representing? Right, right. And the reason I asked that
1: was because I think one of the elements its built into what Zachary was saying, too, is that uh, we need more voices in our democracy. Our democracy thrives. This has been one of our themes throughout the podcast. It thrives on what James Madison called pluralism. Yes. Many points of view. And in a way, we don't want you to change your vote. We want you to bring your perspective to your vote, which is what you're doing, what yeah. young people do, what new voters do of all kinds, whether they are 41 year old new citizens or whether they are 15 year olds who will soon have the right to vote based on age. Uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, you and our democracy, Miha. We're very fortunate to have all the naturalized citizens going all the way back to our grandparents, great grandparents for Zachary and me, uh, and the ways in which they have uh, continued to make our society better and more open with every generation. Um, Thank you for joining us, uh, Miha and Zachary on this episode of This Is Democracy.
0: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at
2: Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.